welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 98 for Wednesday, February 12th, 2020. I have some great news. Later this month, this very month, February 2020, at PAX East, the 11th annual PAX East, and also my 11th annual PAX East, I will once again be moderating a panel. I'm really excited about this topic. It's called Gaming After Kids. It's about how to retain your identity as a gamer after having children, because having children can be such a redefining moment in a person's life that some things have to give. How do you make sure that gaming is not one of those things? The panel is Saturday, February 29th at 5.30 p.m. in Cuttlefish. I'm so excited to have a great panel of parents on that event with me, one of whom is on the podcast today. We've been friends for years. We go way back, but we've never done a podcast until tonight. Please join me in welcoming Nick Tompkins-Hughes. Hi, Nick. Hey, Ken. I'm super thrilled to be honest with you. And also almost all of those words about PAX East were simultaneously exciting and terrifying. <laughs> like, all, it's definitely less than three weeks away, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is right around the corner. I'm looking oh, at the God. calendar. It starts, uh, you and I are recording on February 5th. PAX East begins three weeks from tomorrow. Oh, boy. Yep. That's scary. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that reminder. <laughs> yeah, three weeks from tonight, I'll be checking in my hotel, and that'll probably be the last good night of sleep I'll get for a while. Yeah. <laughs> but you're looking forward to it, though, right? I am. Um, I definitely have noticed over the past few years that I do not have as much tolerance for the crowds as I used to, um, which was, was something that came as a surprise. I used to be really into crowds and festivals and concerts that were really loud. And all of a sudden, a few years ago, I was just like, you know, this is not my jam. I don't know if I need to be in this particular traffic jam of thousands of humans in this big room for a very long time. <laughs> um, so I'm really excited to do um, like get to see more panels and spend time like in the smaller room spaces and also hopefully more time in tabletop, which I somehow never make time for. What do you think changed to make you enjoy crowds less? Oh boy. I think it's honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if it has a lot to do with having kids now because I kind of just have a constant low level um, buzz of energy suck. Um, I mean that in the nicest possible way, but like I've, I've read about the idea a lot, a lot with, uh, with new moms who aren't interested in having intimate relations with their partners because they feel like touched out and they spend all their time with a tiny human that wants all their love and attention. And then, then there's other humans that want love and attention too. And like, no, <laughs> there's only enough energy <laughs> in a day. And I think that having to spend so much 24 seven time as the solo primary parent of one and then two kids, I just think that by the time I have my own me time, even if I'm like, yeah, I'm so excited to go out, you know, to PAX. Um, so yeah, I think it might just be the energy suck. <laughs> Could it also be that you are so now accustomed to being in a crowd with your kids that you're always paying attention to where they are and not losing sight of them. And now just being in crowds puts you in that hypervigilant mode, which is exhausting. Yeah, I definitely, especially, especially with my kids, um, they're both kind of wanderers. They both like to flirt with danger and, you know, 
come as close as close to the line as possible <laughs> without crossing it, which requires its own particular brand of hypervigilance. And then, yeah, and I think even just sometimes like, and and I also the the, the other very real factor that. I kind of would be silly not to bring up is like the actual socio-political climate of choosing to be in a large space with a large number of people. And especially like in the gaming industry, you know, I was, I was working in a role behind the scenes and a game that was kind of controversial. And so I was getting, um, you know, I was getting a much higher exposure to things like death threats and things like just general, the, the negative side of, of the gaming industry. And so I was much more aware um, all of a sudden and for the ongoing time of just the kind of undercurrent of negativity and violence and, and threats and all those scary things that kind of hit me all at once one year. And then since then, you know, obviously we've had the current administration for the last several years and it kind of just feels like everything's on fire all the time. And so honestly, sometimes I genuinely question whether or not I want to be in a largely populated space that's confined where there's a very large mixture of people with a lot of different opinions and a lot of very passionate things that they have to think. <laughs> um, and that's definitely a factor, I think, too. Yeah, we can make broad generalizations. Certainly, there are people of diverse opinions in any geographic or hobby community, but mm. Massachusetts tends to lean one direction, and due to Gamergate, gamers have a perception of being leaning in the other direction. Yeah. And so, when you are accustomed to being in Massachusetts, but then all of a sudden you go to a gaming convention, you might not know what to expect. Yep, absolutely. I think, uh, and I actually remember very viscerally the first time I was at PAX East and saw someone wearing clothing that was, you know, kind of very clearly um, promoting an anti-victim, anti-women, anti-safe spaces kind of vibe and i was just like oh wow definitely i don't want to be in a crowd next to you <laughs> and also what makes you any different than any of these other people that just didn't feel bold enough to wear the shirt you know right um, how many more people are there who would wear the shirt if they thought they wouldn't get in trouble right and how many people applaud the decision that for that shirt to be made available exactly um yeah and it wasn't even like a specific i want to specify clearly it wasn't specific to a, a pax event it wasn't related to any past historical known ongoing controversies. It was just someone's homemade shirt that said a phrase that had to do with women and violence and sexual violence. And, and I was just like, man, wow. Okay. Let me relocate. <laughs> yep. I hear that. So I want to talk more about PAX, specifically the panel you and I are going to be doing, but let's yeah. back up and introduce you a bit more to our listeners. <laughs> you have been so active in gaming for so long in so many different capacities. You've been a community manager, a freelance writer for Polygon and Pixelkin, a panel moderator at PAX, and more. What is your current relationship with video games? That is a very interesting question. And also, that's a very good point. Hi, I'm Nick. <laughs> um, I Right now, I'm a case manager in more of the human services and social work kind of realms. And, um, and so in my real my real day-to-day -day job, that's kind of what I do. For a while, I was fortunate enough to get to do some freelance writing in the games community um, and also was a volunteer community, community manager in a few spaces. Um, and then at one point I took a position with a game company working behind the scenes. Um, and that gave me some, some really significant insight into a lot of the things that 
I had heard about and really kind of seen, but without really knowing that that's what I was seeing, if that makes sense. Um, like I, I was seeing uh, very public trends in the gaming community amongst writers and amongst developers and amongst consumers of games. Um, but I wasn't always necessarily, I don't want to say invested, but maybe I wasn't feeling impacted um, as much as I maybe should or could have been. Um, and I, I feel like getting an inside look um, was kind of a blessing and a curse. Um, I did get to know a lot more about the industry and I, I got to um, learn a lot more about the process and about project management and community involvement um, and a lot of really valuable parts of really almost every aspect in some capacity, like a little bit here, there and everywhere of different aspects of the industry. Um, but it also really gave me a, a very clear insight into the sometimes unsustainable culture of game development, game employment, um, um, the sometimes unsustainable and unsafe realities of gaming communities, especially for women, especially for people of color, especially for people with strong opinions. <laughs> um, and then in general, um, you know, I kind of was finding myself taking my challenging experiences from work home with me. Um, and I just wasn't, I really wasn't enjoying spending time playing games. And then along the same timeline, I then, you know, was a, a parent of two. <laughs> and so in the last couple of years, since my last PAX East panel, actually, which when I last did a PAX East panel, I was seven months pregnant <laughs> um, with my oh, second kid. Oh, I remember kid. that PAX yeah. panel. I, I was your companion. I was allowed into all the events early with you. Yes, I was very, very pregnant. <laughs> um, and so that was my last panel that I was on. And I really took a big step back from writing about games and a whole lot of, I just took a huge step back. Um, partly because I, I took a break and, and moved on from that position that I was in. And so as a form of my own mental health, you know, well-being, I kind of really had a, a break, like a relationship style break <laughs> with gaming. And I really kind of also was evaluating some of my self-care habits around, was I spending time playing games because I was genuinely invested in the story and the experience or because it was novel or was I replaying, you know, Kingdom Hearts for like the 11th time because I was procrastinating my thesis? <laughs> and um, more often than not, my answers were more in the latter category. Um, so I kind of shifted my relationship to gaming to be more along the lines of um, trying to experience new things with my kids, um, with games and, and getting to discover new games with them. Um, kind of rediscovering games that I enjoy or that I enjoyed when I was a kid from their perspective now that they're getting a little older. Um, and I really started to kind of refocus or go back to um, tabletop games, trying to spend some time with tabletop games with friends. I, I actually um, finally kind of got invested in a D&D campaign for the first time and, and really made that you know, kind of leap <laughs> from, from digital to tabletop in a pretty serious way. Um, and even just kind of getting out of my comfort zone, I definitely shifted away from using gaming as like a escape for essentially an escape from dealing with stress or dealing with, you know, whatever, whatever was going on in my life that I was putting off. <laughs> and I kind of actively shifted it to like a reward style thing or like a bonding thing or like, 
you know, if I'm spending time with someone and I, you know, we, you know, it's like that awkward, like, oh, we want to hang out together, but we don't, we don't really know what we want to do. <laughs> so we'll just play community games together, you know, co-op games. So that's kind of where I live now with gaming. <laughs> it sounds like gaming is an active part of your life, but also a positive one. Yeah, I definitely think that. And I, and I, in some ways, I think gaming is more active in my life than it was before, even though I spend way less time actively consuming gaming content. Um, like I actively don't read a lot of gaming content anymore. Um, just honestly, I just don't have time <laughs> in the, at the end of the day, there's only so many hours in it. Um, but also like I just, you know, I, I stopped really seeing a ton of titles and um, new content that I was really excited about that I knew was accessible to me. Um, like I really love VR. I um, my one of my kids' parents has a, a VR setup that I get to play with sometimes, and I really really enjoy it. But that is not financially accessible to me right now. <laughs> so getting interested in it and liking it doesn't really do me a whole lot of good. Um, but I can keep an eye on when the next uh, The Room game is coming out. <laughs> that is a different level of financial accessibility. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's kind of where I'm at now. Knowing that you like VR means that you can seek out those experiences at PAX East, at Boston Fig, and places like that. Yes. Oh man, Boston Fig is like a VR playground. I don't know. I feel like it's... It's always this. I I didn't go last year, so maybe I missed an explosion in the population there. But I feel like nobody knows that secretly Boston Fig is just getting to do as much VR as you want. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Every year that I've been there, there are so many unique experiences that you can try with Oculus. I think my favorite one was that that game where you're the cat and you knock all the things off, cat lateral damage. Oh yeah, my the, God. <laughs> yeah, Chris Chung, the creator of that, is based in Boston, and he was on my other podcast, Indie Cider, a few years ago. Oh my gosh, that was like that. That's amazing. I'm gonna have to go listen to that. He was really fun. <laughs> they were really fun to talk to, and they were like explaining the game, and then I just sat there and watched people play play for a very a very long time, and then I think <laughs> I also saw one where. You got to ride on an exercise bike, and then in front of the exercise bike was a fan, and you were um, you were riding a Pegasus, and like how fast you rode the bike was how how much air you, like how much flapping you were doing, and then you could like coast, and then the fan would shift direction based on how you were leaning your body, and it was like the coolest thing to watch. <laughs> yeah, I remember getting emails about that from Will Brierly of Snowrunner Productions. He also made Soda Drinker Pro. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's funny. See, like, this is why the gaming world is really, really small. <laughs> it's Especially really in small. Boston. Especially in Boston. Yeah, there is. <laughs> I do love the, like, honestly, I, the one thing I will say is that the Boston indie community is, is really, in my experience, very supportive for the most part like i would say probably like 95 percent of the boston indie community is like really supportive of one another and very like lifting each other up and very like oh you're stuck on this thing how can i help you or i know someone that might be able to help you so i think that's like a really cool thing about boston that i haven't heard about a lot of other gaming hubs that maybe are more tech and more industrial like in on the west coast um so yeah, I'm definitely I'm happy to to know the people I know here in Boston for sure, including yourself. Well, not not that you're from Boston anymore, but <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm I'm from Boston. I'm just not in Boston. Yeah, you're no longer a part of Boston, but you are always a part of Boston. <laughs> Boston will always be a part of me. Yeah, exactly. 
So you've talked about how your gaming has changed partly as a result of having kids. You have two children. If I recall, they are 10 and 5 years old or about? Uh, just about to be 5, but yeah, 10 and, 10 and almost 5. What can you tell me about them? What are they like? They are just delightful. Um, <laughs> they're, uh, <laughs> so they're very, very different from each other. And in very different ways, they're very like me. Um, my, my older child is 10 and it has, has high functioning autism spectrum disorder um, and also ADHD. And so a lot of his life is about structure and routine and we use visual checklists. Um, we have a really strong support system that we've created for him, not only with like his dad and I as co-parents, but also with like external supports in um, school and outside of school. Um, and so for him, he absolutely, he loves gaming. Like his, he, he's he has been to minecraft camp a few times um he's been to tech and design camp twice where he used a 3d printer and got to like do some animation and some autocad design and um so he's he's had a lot of great exposure to technology as a tool and as entertainment um and honestly he is he's a very funny kid he's definitely going to be the class clown he loves telling jokes he loves just generally anything that he can do whatsoever to make people laugh he wants to do it that being said um he definitely struggles with emotional regulation which is not uncommon for kiddos um you know dealing with those particular diagnoses specifically um and he was fortunate or unfortunate to inherit some pretty significant anxiety from myself um and so for him gaming can be his number one reinforcer and his number one goal and you know he can earn gaming time by doing chores and you know accomplishing tasks that you know are part of his daily routine like getting his homework done but he also can very much hyper focus and um, is still really navigating how to balance out his urge to play games and his urge to experience gaming content against the very real realities of life even just at 10 years old things like taking a shower <laughs> doing you know emptying the dishwasher once every couple Couple days, um, you know, chores that are totally appropriate for him. Um, sometimes gaming can get in the way of that for him. Um, so it's something um, that I'm, I'm very, you know, we're we're cautious about. Um, we see the value in helping him learn technology, but we also do already see sometimes where, you know, just the idea that he could lose access to games for an evening is enough to trigger a pretty significant tantrum, even if that's a totally reasonable consequence for an action that's happened. Um, so that's kind of a challenge with him. So that's, that's the older one. <laughs> the younger one is just a fun, fun time. So she is she's testing as gifted. <laughs> um, she actually had a lot of the same behavioral challenges and academic challenges as my older child. And so we kind of followed the same path of evaluation and assessment um, to make sure that we were making sure they were both getting the same supports. Um, and ultimately uh, with support, she really exploded. She had like really significant language gains and cognitive gains. And now um, is kind of on the flip side. She's really, ahead of the curve in a lot of areas. And um, for anybody who's listening that has kids who are gifted, they it's kind of like, uh, and I'm not joking, and I promise I'm not a mean person, it's kind of like having a live-in genie who actively wants to misinterpret everything that you say. Um, <laughs> so like, if I tell this kid to get ready for school, 
sometimes she'll come downstairs wearing something that she knows is completely inappropriate for school, but her logic behind her choices to wear whatever she's wearing is completely sound. Um, <laughs> like 100% sound like, well, you didn't tell me that I couldn't wear my yellow galoshes, even though, you know, it's like 75 degrees out and I'm not allowed to wear yellow galoshes to gym. You didn't remind me of that. So I put them on and that's not my fault. You're the adult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly like totally sound logic completely and it's it's painful sometimes <laughs> trying to like do the mental gymnastics to try and stay ahead of her <laughs> she's like the kind of kid who like will look at me and then run at a breakneck speed towards the street and i just kind of have to trust that i know that she knows that she has to stop at the curb but I also can't just let the four-year-old run at a breakneck street <laughs> towards the street and just hope that she's going to stop. Um, so she's one of those kids. <laughs> she's a very particular kind of kid. Um, but she's also genuinely a great kid to be around. She's very, very kind. Um, this morning I was having some big feelings uh, and she brought me a stuffy and, and knew that it was like my special stuffy that I you know cherish. And so she was like, oh, I could, you know, knock on the door and, and I had asked for privacy and so she knocked on the door and I was like what's going on you know I just want a couple minutes and she's like well, I just brought you your stuffy because I saw that you were sad and so I wanted to bring your stuffy so you feel better so she's she's definitely very aware of everybody around her and her she's very empathic which is also like me um and I hear from everybody that she is a tiny, tiny version of me. So that's terrifying <laughs> because <laughs> I also see that and they're right. <laughs> so I listened to another podcast you did five years ago with our mutual friend, Aline Sims oh on gosh. the Less Center Equal podcast. Mm -hmm. And a real blast from the past there. Yeah. With that show. So in that previous podcast five years ago, you described your older son who is at the time was five years old as a pink boy. Does that term still apply five years later? That's a very good question. I think it does, but not in the same way. So what did it mean then and what does it mean now? Um, so when he was about that age and, and in preschool, um, he had long hair, his hair was shoulder length. And that was how he, he was very adamant that that's how he wanted it. Um, he really loved the color pink. He loved having his nails painted. Um, he really wanted to get into a ballet and dance program, um, and was just like gung ho, um, for a very long time. Unfortunately, the public school, you know, kind of a cliff's notes, I'm sure as you, if you listen to that and probably heard me cry about it, um, is that the experience he had in public school was not supportive of kids like him and his peers, um, really ostracized him pretty immediately as early as preschool when he was three, uh, three and a half. Um, and um, the really fascinating thing was that he was in a half half day preschool in the public school and a half day preschool at a private daycare, which was in the like they share a parking lot. Um, and, and the private daycare is actually owned by the town. <laughs> so it's even more confusing. Um, but they were operated completely separately. And so at the public school preschool, he was so intensely ostracized and, and almost bullied for lack of a better word, you know, aside from the fact that these are three year olds. Um, and the teachers were so unsupportive and so actively uns like they, their response was, well, if you send him to school dressed like that, we can't stop people from making fun of him. Like that was their actual response. And then on the flip side, 
the private daycare, same kind of conversation, I would call ahead to be like, hey, he's going to be wearing this today. You know, there's going to be a change of clothes in his backpack. If there's any problems, give me a call, whatever. Like I was actively trying to stay involved. And they were like, oh, he already told us all about it. He already showed us. We're so excited. And like, there was just a completely different vibe. And unfortunately, public school is full time as a kindergarten. So that's the environment that he's been in. And he cut his hair. He actually ended up cutting his hair um, before he went into first grade. He asked, he asked us to get his hair cut. Um, and he definitely does love to present now as like a, a very dapper. He's very dapper. That's a very good word for how he presents. Um, <laughs> he's very dapper. He owns a top hat. Uh, he owns several suit jackets and several different kinds of button ups. Um, and he has a, a very significant penchant for shirts that he has accidentally stolen from female family members. <laughs> like he'll be walking around the house and I'll be like, is that Auntie Shannon's shirt? Where'd you get that? <laughs> is that? Is that her Brad Paisley shirt? Where'd you, where'd you even find that? <laughs> and so he has some kind of tendencies <laughs> in his fashion choices and in some of his mannerisms, um, that he's you know, delicate in some ways, <laughs> um, I think is a very nice way. Like his mannerisms, he's often very delicate in how he speaks with his hands and how he sits. He always sits with his legs crossed. He always, um, he has a very just kind of delicate posture is a nice way of putting it, um, which is also very, very complex and or I guess at odds because he has such a big, funny personality. <laughs> um, and, so yeah, I I wouldn't be surprised to see him in the future. You know, I, I'm a drag. I'm actually now a drag king, which I don't know if he knew that, but I'm a drag king, and so I wouldn't at all be surprised to see him experiment or want to experiment with drag in the future, for example. Um, but I don't think that he's in a place where he would wear things like that to school or comfortably do more than um, you know occasionally wear um, a more feminine cut shirt to school. I think that's about his boundary right now. Um, at school, but at home, he's definitely a little more, <laughs> a little more extravagant. <laughs> Do you think he in any way limits himself because he's concerned about how he's going to be perceived or responded to? Oh, a hundred percent. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's actually from, from age three or four, he stopped. Um, so the big thing that happened was that he brought a, um, his Hello Kitty, backpack he had a hello kitty backpack he had hello kitty sneakers he had pink plaid sparkle sneakers um and he brought a hello kitty plushie into preschool um and he was just like from day one so many kids were telling him that's only for girls you can't have that what's wrong with you and his teachers in the public school setting did nothing about it they just basically ignored it um and then they put it back on us and said if we allowed him to go to school with things like that that's how kids were probably going to treat him um, I actually went so far as to offer to buy books for their classroom, um, books like Jacob's New Dress and Read a Crayon Story, um, which are both very age appropriate, like award winning picture books for preschool and probably preschool to first grade um, that talk about expression of gender identity without talking about gender identity. It's really about gender expression and about acceptance of gender expression and about how negative response to gender expression can hurt people um, and can be unintentionally hurtful. Um, those two particular books, especially. Um, and what I was told by the public school is that they would need to send home a sex education um, permission slip 
to be able to read either of those books in the classroom setting. Um, granted, they did not actually read either of those books before they said that. <laughs> um, but then the private school was like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. We would love to have you donate books. <laughs> um, Great. Yeah, thank you so much. That sometimes is mind boggling. Um, but that uh, the awareness of how his peers will react to his um, outfits for sure, his hair length. He keeps his hair kind of like in, in what 90s children would probably feel is very close to a bowl cut. Um, and he, every once in a while, will all of a sudden very strongly want us to go get him a haircut. And he'll want to really tighten it up and get it a little bit more modern, um, similar to some of the YouTubers that he watches. Um, and I think that when he suddenly focuses on that again, we hear a lot about... Um, some things that are going on at school or new kids are coming into school um, who are expressing opinions about him or that he's trying to make friends with. Um, and so it's definitely a, his, his presentation and now my presentation is something that is for sure on his mind a lot, I think. Hmm. We're going to be bouncing back and forth in this podcast between talking about gender and talking about games. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit about games with your kids you and I are of a generation that grew up playing video games. It mm -hmm. played a very important role in our lives. Yeah. I mean, just look at where we ended up. <laughs> and so I want to know, you said that your kids play video games. How is their relationship with games or what role does game play fill for them that was different for you and me? I actually don't think it's really different at all. Um, I was thinking about this the other day that a lot of times – um, a lot of people I know with kids who are kind of in that eight to 12 year old range have this very like negative mindset, like these games that they're playing, they're not valuable. They're, you know, like they're not nostalgic. They don't have the same kind of creativity and, and storytelling and, um, and they're, they're different. You know, it's kind of like we've become the like get off my lawn, uh, <laughs> with our kids and these games they play. And, um, and I think that I personally have realized that I have a really negative, reaction to when the games that my son wants to play require um, microtransactions or downloadable content in order to stay relevant or are like, well, so let me preface that by saying our family has a really, really strong policy around games and violence. Um, our, as a whole, we really don't consume content that, that focuses on violence as a form of entertainment, meaning like, we have a couple Nerf guns. Like that's probably as close as we get to having guns as entertainment. And the first time someone accidentally shot a human with one of those guns, it went away for a week. So we have a pretty strong policy that like guns and weapons are not entertainment. They're not fun. They're scary. They're, you know, they're something we need to be respectful of. We need to be careful of and not something that's like a, Ooh, like let's eat some popcorn and enjoy ourselves. Not that that's, an invalid choice for people who feel that way. But for our family and our kids, that's what the trio of co-parents ultimately has decided on. That's how we've decided to raise everybody, um, including ourselves. And, um, and so for him, a lot of his games are, he loves survival games. He plays raft a lot, which is fascinating to watch. Um, he also likes uh, scrap mechanic, um, which is another indie game. That's like kind of, like a it's like a sandbox build your own gadgety kind of game um i don't think it ever came out of alpha so it's, it's a little glitchy when he plays it um minecraft is a staple um and the big thing that we're running into now that's a challenge is that he really wants to play online cooperatively with some of his friends and we're not there yet 
Uh, we're just not. Uh, for him as a specific kid, and also just as a family, we don't feel like he's old enough yet. The the overlap that I do see is that um, the games that, that he really appreciates and enjoys do have an element of creativity and adventure and nostalgia for him based on what's normal for him. Like for him, what's normal is they use computers in almost every part of their day. Like it's weird when they don't use computers at school, like they actively have to figure out what to do (laughs) if the computers aren't working. But for us, that was such a brand new novel concept. Like, Oh my God, what I can push this button and the thing will move from one side of the screen to the other. And I can get better at it. That part, I'm starting to kind of come around to. I'm starting to feel a little bit less grouchy (laughs) about the games that he likes. And now I'm realizing that the only person standing in the way of him having more cooperative experiences with games is me (laughs) because I don't want him to play online. And that's basically all they do. (laughs) Like all of his friends play online already and they're only 10. And I'm like over here like a weirdo trying to make playdates with these kids <laughs> to try and get them to hang out in the same house at the same time. So speaking of schools and relationships, you alluded to an anecdote where your son brought a survey home from school. Can you tell us about that? Yes, that thing gets me every, I, I like out of nowhere sometimes I think about this. So Lucas was uh in I wanna say first or second grade, some kind of just like weird project that they brought home for for me, the primary parent, and it was like everything I know about mom. And it asked how old I was and he got that right. And um it asked what my favorite food was, which I think was like reasonably right. I think he said like pizza or something, which I mean, whatever. Sure. Um, And then it said, it asked what my favorite thing to do was. And he wrote, my favorite thing to do was make dinner. And I was just like, excuse me? (laughs) No, it is not. (laughs) That is my least favorite thing to do every day. Like, are you kidding? Every day I have to feed you? (laughs) Like, I don't remember to feed myself. (laughs) So, like, no, making you dinner is not the favorite part of my day. (laughs) I don't love doing that. But of course, you can't say that. Like, I can't, I can't say thank you so much, my darling child. This is an insult. (laughs) Um, But it also made me realize, like, of all the things that I actively enjoy doing, especially, you know, at that time, I was I was gaming much more actively. I was writing more actively. You know, I I was going back to school. I'm. I was working full time. Like there's so many, I craft, I make things. I was, I made cute children's hats that I crocheted and ones that like I sewed. I had made cosplay for him. I make his costumes every year from scratch. Like he was a Minecraft guy and I built all the armor and like my, my little one was true from true in the rainbow kingdom this year. And I made her little backpack from scratch with the sewing machine. And like, I'm a competent crafter and I do all these things in my, life and this kid thinks that my favorite thing to do is making dinner (laughs) i have failed (laughs) and like and i genuinely felt that way like that's really what he was taking away from who i am as a person and what my goals and dreams and wants and needs were as a person that he thought my favorite thing to do was making dinner. It's <laughs> like, is a very nice sentiment. I don't know if maybe he thought that he, like, I really enjoyed bonding with him, but it, that's not how it came across. <laughs> it's not, that is not how that message landed. Um, 
And yeah, that was a big like eye opener for me. <laughs> but again, your your kid was only five at the time, and how well do they ever really know their parents? I mean, kids see their parents in terms of what they provide to them, and you do provide them dinner as more than you know. Gaming may have been a solo thing that you did that they don't care about. Yeah, well, and I definitely and that and that was like, and that was part of that dual identity of being a parent and also being every every part of you that you are outside of being a parent and trying to maintain or abandon <laughs> one of those identities. And what I find it as a trend amongst people I know who are solo parents um, is that there's, there's a trend that some people really cannot integrate that second identity as a parent, either because they weren't ready, they aren't ready, they aren't capable, they don't want to, <laughs> um, all valid. Um, but what I was kind of realizing in that moment was, um, because I, you know, I agree, kids see, kids see you as you present themselves to you, to them. Um, and having a second kid has very drastically different observational skills for one, for one thing, but who has a different kind of observational skill and also just a different kind of awareness of the people around them was very eye-opening because when I ask um, my little one what I like to do best, she'll tell me like, um, she'll tell me I like to sleep. Also true. <laughs> um, and she'll tell me that I like watching movies, um, which is also true. Um, and there are things that I do with her. And I definitely like there's there's a disconnect I think um, between the idea that even at four or five, you know, kids don't have some idea of who we are um, just based on what we show them. Like, I think that I don't know. I think I think there's something to be said about the specific interaction between my son and I and our and how we mesh and sometimes don't mesh. Um, and how he perceives me as his primary parent and as his caregiver. But I think that that was also a very significant reflection of who I was allowing myself to be. You know, at that time, I was working constantly. I was working legitimate 80 to 90 hour weeks um, and also going to school and just being the primary parent, um, which just leaves no time for anything else except maybe eating and showering sometimes. Um, for a very, for several years, I was nursing, um, I was breastfeeding. So even when I wanted to be playing games, I actively had a tiny human <laughs> stealing my life, <laughs> stealing my lifeblood <laughs> or whatever you want to call it, uh, from my body. And, and I would just be stuck for hours seething uh, that I wanted to do things where I wanted to, like, I had a really hard time settling into being a parent and like bonding and, and enjoying that time and not feeling like there were so many other things I needed to do. So I can totally see how a five-year-old would look at my life and say, the only time I seem happy is when I'm making dinner. <laughs> um, because it's probably the only time I would slow down enough to actively engage and be present in the moment um, and stop moving and stop running around. So your son didn't see you as a gamer. I have a friend who has been a guest on this podcast. He goes to PAX East every year. One year we went to Gamer X together. He cosplayed and I had him on the show and I asked him, are you a gamer? And he said, no. <laughs> and I asked him why. And he said, essentially that for him, gaming was a hobby, not an identity. Hmm. So for you, Nick, 
Are you a gamer? I think yes, and I think because for me, so many of my best memories as like a young kid and even as an adolescent and then as an adult, both professionally and personally, um, so many of my interpersonal exchanges that I use to like build new relationships and, um, you know, spend quality time with my family. So many of those things still have a hand or a touch in gaming that it really is kind of like a part of who I am and who my identity is. Like we, we play games at family gatherings. We, you know, my, the the four-year-old is ruthless at Uno. Like, oh my God, she's absolutely, like, I do not like playing with Uno with her anymore because she is so ruthless. (laughs) Um, And, you know, like the, the, I, I'm actually at an internship at a shelter right now at a homeless shelter. And we had to do a, um, an icebreaker. We had to come up with an icebreaker for a, a big team meeting we were having. And, there was this like, well, we got to come up with something fun that everybody likes, but we don't want it to be too competitive. And then like, I ended up being the person that came up with an idea because I was just like, this sounds like a fun way to kind of have fun and be participating and like play a game that doesn't have a negative competitive connotation. Um, and I don't think that I would be able to come up with ideas like that if I didn't have this part of my brain that really enjoyed finding ways to make weird stuff fun and finding ways to solve problems and make solving problems seem fun. (laughs) Um, And I think that all comes from, you know, Oregon trail and, (laughs) and, and learning, you know, playing Mario sunshine until I threw a controller (laughs) and, and figuring out how to, you know, enjoy, I think the first full game I played after I had kids. And it's like this weird uh, switch farming game (laughs) i think it's like a a a barn game and it was just like a simulator just a weird barn simulator game and i played it for like six hours (laughs) i was just like this is heaven no one needs me (laughs) no one needs me except for these dumb chickens (laughs) 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 it's just like the best thing um and when i have time and energy and bandwidth absolutely games games make me very very happy and but i don't think that they're um, I I think that I'm able to have them as a part of my identity as a thing I enjoy now and not as a thing I have to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, that sounds healthier. It seems that way. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> <laughs> Time will tell. Yeah, basically. So you're a gamer, you're a parent. These two things intermingle as we've talked about. You've done panels at PAX East about this topic. Several, in fact, right? At least two? Yes, I did two parenting panels at PAX East as well as one at Boston Fig. And then I was also on a panel at GamerX, but that was not about... Soon, you're going to be on your first PAX panel in about five years. Yes. And you won't be the moderator this time. That responsibility is not one you have to worry about. (laughs) But I I would like your advice because this is going to be practical advice for me. How are you hoping that this year's panel will be different from the other parenting panels you've done? Ooh, um, I think I really want to hear about how people balance their mental health and their obligations as a parent and their self-care, if that makes sense. I think that concept of, of using games as a tool and also acknowledging 
our tendency sometimes as parents to use gaming as an escape in a way that's not always healthy. Um, and I think parents tend to like, that seems to be like the really big elephant in the room sometimes, especially in single parent households. Um, you know, that internal struggle between like, I really would love to be able to play this new game, but I can't afford it. And I don't have time. And if I do play it, I'll probably feel guilty the whole time. And that's not going to be fun for anybody. <laughs> um, but balancing that against, you know, hey, you know, my 10 year old is maybe now able to um, try out some simulation games that I really enjoyed, you know, when I was this age, or, you know, they're learning different kinds of coding and techniques in Minecraft. And so maybe now we can translate that into some actual like coding and stuff. And like, how are we? How are we translating that in a way that's healthier, if that makes sense? As a non-parent, I'm not as interested in raising the next generation of gamers. And that is mm. something that I've heard a lot of discussion about at PAX. And that is absolutely important and valid. I'm just saying it's not of personal interest to me. That's fair. And so my interest this year is not so much on the kids, but on the parents. How Ooh. do we take care of ourselves? How do we remain ourselves? And you know, your yeah. question about self-care is very relevant and very important. Something that I think is a really funny question that I also would love to get, and I would love to hear answers about is teaching small children of varying ages and abilities to play games, especially board games is not always a fun adventure. <laughs> and I feel like I maybe I'm not as alone in that experience as I sometimes feel that I am. <laughs> I think that's something that I'm very curious about. Am I the only person that sometimes has a hard time with teaching children to play games? <laughs> well, my experience is that when I, so I have three older brothers, when the first one to become a parent announced that he was going to be a parent, I was super excited and the kid was born and I was a happy uncle. And then the kid, turned one and then two and I went to the dad and I said at what point may I buy your son an 8-bit Nintendo mm -hmm. and the dad said wow that's a good question I don't know that my, my wife and I have discussed this and I said are you serious this is all I've been thinking about since you told me she was pregnant I've been waiting for this day and he's like okay well so they talked about it and they said you know ask again when he's six years old I'm like great so I waited four more years the kid turned six and I said, may I get your son an 8-bit Nintendo for his sixth birthday? And he said, we decided that we don't want video games in the house. Oh. Like, Ugh. So then I have another brother who has a wife and two stepchildren and a child together. And the two stepkids are older. And they want a new video game system. And you know, my brother, this brother came to me knowing that I'm the gamer and said, what do you recommend I get my kids? Here's my budget. And I said, well, your options are the PS4, the Xbox One, and the Switch. Here are the pros and cons of each one. I recommend the Switch because it has more age-appropriate games. And since it's portable, when they're playing on the TV and you need to get the kids out the door and into the SUV to go somewhere, you can just say, hey, bring the game with you, and there's going to be a lot less fighting. And my brother wrote back and said, my kids want the same thing that all their friends are playing. And I'm like, then get them the Xbox One. Why did you even ask me? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it wasn't about <laughs> having... <laughs> what does that mean? Because it's like, uh, this switch this is so much, such a much better recommendation. That's what, uh, yeah, it just is. 
But see, in this case, their decision was not within the context of the household. It was in the, within the context of the playground. And what were they going to be able to talk to other kids about if they weren't playing the same games? Yeah. Yeah. And we, yeah, I, we, I run with, I run into that with a Fortnite, Fortnite. And there's one other one. We don't, uh, Roblox for a while it was Roblox. Um, we decided not to be a Roblox house because of the, um, essentially because of the online chat interface and because of the concerns about that, which were very valid. And then Fortnite, kind of the same thing, the online gaming, as well as the fact that it's, you know, it's a violence game, um, as opposed to like simulation and Minecraft. I mean, Minecraft has its own levels of violence, but, um, it's a different kind. <laughs> it's definitely a different kind. Yeah, that 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 like let. Oh man, you will identify with this. I know you're a Star Trek person. I am. I have a podcast with Sabriel. <laughs> oh my gosh, you're definitely a Star Trek person. So I'm a Star Wars person. I'm one of those too. Okay, good. So my ten year old does not give a crap about Star Wars. <laughs> Like I, we, we literally waited to watch. We waited to watch the first one with him. Granted, and just to be clear, we watched New Hope like you're supposed to. Um, and so of we course. finally got him this year to watch it with us because we knew like he's a sensitive kid. I, and, and the dads would be like, Oh, come on. He's ready. He's ready. And I was like, yeah, tell me about that time when they go back, you know, to the, the, the smoldering bone pile. Tell me how he's going to handle that. And then when you're ready to tell me how he's going to handle that, we can watch it. And so we finally watched it and he did great. And he sat through the whole thing. He only tried to bail out once and we gave him a break. And then he was like, Oh, I want to finish it. I want to finish it. So he came back and we're like, when do you want to watch the next one? And he's just like, um, Oh, I don't really know if we have to do we i was just like oh no yes um excuse me (laughs) yes we have to (laughs) so i i think i genuinely think we've just given up i think (laughs) because the four-year-old's like what are you guys what are you watching can i have a lightsaber we're like absolutely you can have a lightsaber (laughs) see there is another there's another and i still have not like i'm a but when you watch the original two trilogies with your younger child, you're going to watch them in the machete order, right? Yes, absolutely. You're, the only you're familiar order. with that, that I hope? That's the four, uh, four, five, six, one, two, three, seven, eight, nine, right? So it only deals with the first two trilogies, and the order is four, five, two, three, six. Oh, gosh, that's right, that's right, that's right. Oh, my God. And you don't I'm watch one at all. I like, hugely long just conversations about this. Oh, man, this could be, like, its own – this could be its own podcast. I feel like – you know what? Also, this – I feel like we've already touched on the fact that there are people on the internet with very strong opinions. <laughs> yes, yes, there are. I feel like I'm going to watch Star Wars in whatever order I can get my children to watch the damn movies in (laughs) that's exactly the order that i will watch them in (laughs) so we've talked about games we've talked about being a parent we've talked about star trek and star wars let's talk about you nick and you know this is a question that i asked your approval for beforehand you recently transitioned yes how did you know to transition like how did you know that this was the right thing for you to do that is a very good question. I think the the Cliff's notes um, is it like well. So, firstly, um, so I identify as non-binary um, and um, transmasculine, and meaning essentially that uh, I was assigned female at birth. 
Um, and I am currently pursuing um, forms of social transition, meaning I dress very androgynously, typically masculine presenting. Um, I have short masculine style hair. Um, I don't wear, I mean, I did recently, I did recently wear some nail polish and that felt very nice. Um, I'm probably going to do that again. I liked it. Um, <laughs> but, um, like I don't wear makeup. I never actually really have been a makeup person. Um, and in October of 2018, so it's been a little over a year and a half now, I think that, um, I've actually had short hair and which is really fascinating, uh, because people, when people happen to come across photos of me from before my short hair experience, essentially, they're kind of just like, whoa, that's you? <laughs> that's the same person? Uh, what happened? <laughs> um, and there was a really interesting um, kind of like medical personal situation that came up. You know, essentially, I was starting to experience some symptoms associated with um, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Uh, which can impact, you know, levels of various hormones. You can have um, essentially a, a lot of different secondary masculinizing effects like facial hair growth and voice changes and skin changes and a lot of other things as well. Um, and so for me, I started to experience some facial hair growth that really wasn't explainable, um, as well as some other kind of concerning health stuff going on um, with new ovarian cysts that they were really kind of alarmed about. And so in a very, very short time, I had to consider, did I want to have both my ovaries removed? Did I need to have both my ovaries removed or even just one of them? Um, and then also, you know, I was having almost like very panicky reactions to the fact that I was like dealing with facial hair all of a sudden, which is not something I really ever wanted to deal with. And, um, and, at some point, I think there was just a conversation between myself and my doctor where she kind of laid it out for me like, you know, this is basically just probably your new normal and you're just going to need to decide, do you care about this enough that you like want to get electrolysis? Like we could do that, like if that's what you want to pursue. But if not, I think, you know, you should wait, let, let your body settle, see what's really going on. You know, everything looks normal in terms of like there wasn't anything malignant or concerning going on that they needed to pursue um, you know, beyond just checking out and make sure everything was fine. Um, so, you know, no, don't be worried in that front, but, um, but in terms of like, essentially it was, it was a moment of like, okay, so I'm just going to have to deal with this. And then, you know, the doctor was kind of like, yeah, probably. Um, and then I kind of, at some point, I feel like almost that gave me permission to start considering, uh, different presentations or even how to align a presentation that involved any amount of visible facial hair with how hard I had tried for 30 plus years to fit into a female box when I had failed so miserably or felt that I had, you know, constantly felt like I had failed so miserably and was never fitting in that female box correctly, was constantly fighting it, was constantly not feeling comfortable in my own skin, and had been diagnosed with um, body dysmorphic disorder, um, just based on like the level of dysphoria I would experience in my body. And I had always been just that had always been focused about my weight, uh, especially after having kids. Um, I, I was really, really heavy about two years ago, year and a half ago. Um, and I was kind of experiencing a crux of, you know, maximum of femme, um, which was 
having my second child, having literal E-cup breasts and nursing for a year, another year, um, which involved pumping and a whole level of dysphoria um, and, you know, unavoidable feminine presentation as a result of that. Um, and then also being the heaviest I had ever been. Um, and just a whole lot of self-hatred <laughs> going into one human body. <laughs> um, so I call it, uh, I say that I had to do a lot of forced unpacking. <laughs> um, I kind of took these new feelings about having facial hair that was, you know, really for all intents and purposes, probably not that noticeable. Um, but I noticed it. And that was like step one of figuring out like, oh, like there's something else going on here that I need to like focus my attention on. Does that make any sense at all in terms of like a catalyst? I think so. Yeah. I mean, you had a lot of stuff going on and you're like, well, as long as I'm thinking about these things, may as well think about some other things too. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And um, I had also like, I had experienced a a large number of transitions in terms of, um, you know, I had been in, I had been in same sex partnerships several times throughout my life. Um, but then, you know, having my son was in a long-term, uh, opposite sex, you know, heterosexual labeled partnership, um, for several years. And then, you know, getting pregnant with my daughter, you know, then was finding myself again in a really long-term committed partnership with a, with a, um, you know, at the time, cis male presenting individual. And so, I really was also kind of unpacking and realizing exactly how I hesitate to say unhappy because I was very happy in some of those relationships and with some of those partners. Um, but I wasn't happy with the type of relationship. I was realizing exactly how much I was forcing myself to repeat patterns and, and, and act out roles that I really wasn't comfortable with and wasn't happy with. And that was, manifesting patterns of dysfunction in my relationships um, that was definitely related to the fact that I didn't really have great relationships with dudes um, that were cis male identified. Um, And I also kind of just made a choice and it was, which I I hesitate to use the word choice. Um, I have always kind of identified as pansexual, but I kind of, made a choice to actively avoid getting into new relationships with cis men for a while. Um, literally just to just see how it went for a while. <laughs> um, I'm, I don't really know what prompted that other than just, like I said, finding myself in patterns and realizing that those patterns were something that I had observed as a kid um, and that they really weren't making me happy at all. And that the times that I didn't have those patterns were when I was with relationships in relationships with, um, primarily with cis women and with trans men. And so I was like, maybe I just need to, to, I don't want to say force myself, but maybe I need to actively take this other, <laughs> this other turn over here for a little while and like turn off that, turn off the men option in my dating apps for a minute. <laughs> um, and spending more time like reconnecting with, you know, I, I call it queer fam and like reconnecting with a community of, of queer women and, and trans identified individuals and um, kind of, for a little while, I called it uh, returning to my soft butch roots <laughs> um, from my my high school, you know, kind of androgynous phases that I had experienced um, while just throughout my adolescence. 
Um, and I very, very, very quickly found myself far more comfortable in a pair of not well-fitting men's pants and, you know, a much less feminine style shirt on a daily basis than I had in years. And like that first time that I showed up to a friend's house and I was wearing a more mask outfit and they were like, Hey, you look, you look, you look really happy. You know, you look really confident. Um, and even though in that moment I was like, dude, these pants don't fit like what? No. <laughs> um, that really snowballed, um, very, very quickly. Um, even though I experienced a lot of pushback initially, um, I announced that I was going to cut my hair. I actually asked for some feedback from friends and family about different styles and without fail, almost all of them told me they thought that it wasn't a good idea, that they thought I wouldn't like it, that maybe my face type couldn't carry that kind of style. Um, and honestly, like cutting my hair was the best thing that I could have ever done in my life. Um, and I feel like I can see a visible difference. Um, even I, I always use the example, I can see a difference in my phone. <laughs> there are almost no pictures that exist that I have taken of myself prior to like November of 2018. Um, and there are, I'm not even joking when I say that there are probably thousands of pictures that I've taken of myself in the last year. <laughs> um, and that very stark realization is enough for me to have immediately noticed like, wow, there's a reason why I'm taking more pictures of myself. Why is that happening? You know, why am I smiling more? Why are people asking me, you know, Hey, have, did you see, do something different? Um, when in reality it was just like my presentation, they were so actively noticing my difference in my comfort levels. So is this on you wish you had done years ago? Absolutely. I toyed with, cutting my hair short when I was about 17 um, and had encountered some similar pushback. Um, I was also in a job that was um, had a uniform that was gendered. And so, you know, half my wardrobe was gendered. And so half my days were spent in gendered clothes because that's just, you know, what you did. It was just part of the routine. Um, didn't really make sense to push back on that at all at the time. Um, and at the time as well, my employer was starting to push back on things like piercings and hair color. And a lot of my peer employees were getting a lot of pushback about things like atypical gender presentation and, and hair color. And um, I was dating someone who was trans identified, who was actively visibly getting discriminated against in their employment position and in our shared employer. <laughs> and um, so uh, something I realized this year, actually, I listened to a podcast called Family Secrets. And that, by the way, is a very intense podcast. I highly recommend it. Um, but I listened to an episode called The Last Haircut uh, about an individual who realized that he was gay and he was going through this experience of his wife giving him his last haircut before he left their marriage and essentially had to leave their household and his kids and move out because that was the only way he could pursue being an out gay man. Um, and hearing that story going into that, that episode of the podcast, thinking like, oh, this might be relatable, <laughs> you know, like this might be something I can identify with. And just like every word out of this man's mouth about the feelings of internalized self-hatred and 
how many ways that society accidentally teaches us that we're wrong and bad and different and not good enough and atypical and that, that we should be grateful that they're accepting us and not that we have a right to have our own space and have our own way of living that is comfortable for us. Um, seeing how much of that was deeply ingrained in my subconscious, even just from listening to that one episode was really, really eye opening. Um, and like literally from, from a week's long period of time of doing some of this mental unpacking, I decided to like change my pronouns at work to they, them and in my signature. And, um, you know, I came out to my family and, I think that was the hardest part, but everything since then has been like a hundred percent. My life has been a hundred percent happier and like more comfortable for me. And I see myself doing things that I never would have done before um, or even considered doing before. I'm a drag king now. Um, I just presented a research study that I, that I conducted as an independent researcher at first event. And I'm, I'm going to the national conference on undergrad research in, in March and presenting this, this research study that I did. And I don't think Nicole would have done any of those things. I think Nicole would have barely made through this degree program and just figured out a way to keep scraping by and keep surviving and keep, you know, food on the table and enough money in the account to keep it from going negative until she could get a job and keep struggling. And I think that now every day I look at like, why does it have to be this way? Why do we have to be stuck in this system? Why do we have to accept X, Y, and Z? Why can't we look at this as an option instead? Um, and that's definitely an internal change that I wasn't expecting. Oh, that's so great. I mean, as your friend, I'm so happy to hear that you are, have found yourself and that you're happy with who you found. Thank you. Yeah, it's been, it's definitely been, um, it's been a really interesting experience for sure. Like even I, I kind of get this like first day of school level jitters sometimes now when I'm like, like I, I went to first, co- first event this week and I wore a tie and wore like a vest tie combo for the first time and was just like, Oh my God, am I going to prom right now? Like, what is happening? Um, I was like giddy and, you know, going to Thanksgiving this past year and feeling comfortable with, you know, I had was wearing clothes that fit me and I felt comfortable in my body. I had had a year to get used to my hair and I was feeling much more like mask and strong in how my hair was. And I didn't feel like I was just trying to like fit a square peg in a round hole kind of situation. And, um, and I also feel like this year, this Thanksgiving, I really like kind of owned it. Like I kind of went in there and was just like, listen, <laughs> please do not talk to me about my weight. I know I've lost weight. It wasn't on purpose. I don't want to hear about it all day. Also, my name is Nick. Thank you so much. <laughs> that had, you know, was again, also not something that historically, I think, despite my personality, I'm sure there are people that know me that are like, yeah, okay, I'm sure you wouldn't have never done that. But I think in reality, especially with my family, I never would have done things like that before. Um, so it's, it's definitely a huge step in the right direction to, you know, creating my own identity for sure. So you said you wish that you had done this years ago, but I know my experience is more cloistered, but I can say confidently that like seven or eight years ago, I had never heard the phrase non-binary. I didn't know anybody knowingly who identified as such. Six years ago, I didn't know if the term was transgender or transsexual. Mm -hmm. And so the number of options and ways of living 
that I'm aware of have increased dramatically. And I don't think that I could have previously considered a lifestyle that I didn't know existed. Mm -hmm. Do you feel that either your own awareness or the society that we live in would have enabled you to make this change a few years ago? Um, I think that, first of all, I think that you absolutely nailed it. Um, I, I participated in a research study this past summer as a, it was a research study focused on trans masculine presenting parents. Um, and one of the things that they talked about was that they were doing research on possibility models. And, and that is exactly kind of like what you were saying is how do you know that you want to be or are something that you literally don't know exists? Like that's just, your brain doesn't know what you don't know. <laughs> I think that I am very, very fortunate that um, here where I'm geographically located on the Cape, uh, there's a really active Gay Straight Youth Alliance that was very strong when I was going through high school. And I connected with a lot of people there that I'm actually still really close with. And in a very bizarre, like, I almost want to write a book about it level of bizarre. Um, there's a very high proportion of transmasculine individuals in the cohort of adolescents that I went through this program with. Um, so the way the cape is laid out for anybody who's not familiar, it kind of looks like a dude whose arm is curved up like he's flexing. And the um, the youth center that supports gay and straight youth, it's was known as the Gay Straight Youth Alliance at the time, is located like right around like the elbow, like it's in the middle. Um, and so geographically, students from all over the Cape would access this as an after school center. And um, of the, you know, maybe 30 or so people roughly that were in and involved and active in that time, I have a, a close friend group of, I would say, maybe 10 people uh, that I was really close with. And I would say maybe eight of them are transmasculine, <laughs> which is a lot. <laughs> it's a pretty high concentration. Um, and I feel like if I hadn't had those individuals in my life to A, be a support for them when they transitioned, I would have been years behind where I am now, first of all. <laughs> um, and even being that embedded as an adolescent in a queer community with trans peers, I still didn't have a possibility model for a non-binary presentation of a trans identity. Like all of my trans male friends were trans men. And some of them still very strongly identify as binary men. But a couple of them have actually now said that not necessarily that they would want to detransition, but that if they had known what they know now, 15 years ago, that they may have been happy to live in a more non-binary space. And um, that, like you said, like not knowing about non-binary identity or not having it be part of the conversation of queer identity um, or gender identity, really, in the past decade at all. <laughs> um is a huge barrier. And it's one of the reasons I'm so passionate about things like getting um, more inclusive books in elementary schools. And I'm really passionate about, um, you know, like LGBTQ inclusive education, um, because I feel very, very strongly that without these possibility models to realize that, um, you know, actually in, in practice, we see it, we're seeing it now, we're seeing women coming to schools to do career day events to show young girls what kind of careers are available for women. And, but what we don't have is society saying, here are same sex couples 
thriving. <laughs> here are non-binary individuals not getting murdered. <laughs> you know, like here are trans individuals not getting murdered. <laughs> um, and I think that the very, very rapid offering of more queer, positive queer content on a lot of platforms online and on TV has made it possible for like an, a mini explosion of identity transition to happen and, and identity reconfiguring to happen because people are finally getting exposed to possibility models that simply weren't available to them in their, you know, lack of, you know, kind of social circle or geographic area, um, you know, especially in rural areas, but, you know, even in more progressive areas like Massachusetts, you know, like you said, there's the identity of non-binary isn't something that was part of the conversation until recently. Um, so I definitely think that, that mainstream media in the past five years has been a huge factor and policy in the past two to three years has been an even bigger factor, like public policy. Um, unfortunately, I think that the current administration has, has done done us a favor in a really terrible way <laughs> um, by raising awareness and making people angry. Um, but unfortunately they've also taken away a bunch of our rights. So that's not exactly a great <laughs> trade off. No, no, not really. No. <laughs> so you had also mentioned that you do some drag. You are a drag King. I had Matt bomb on this show two years ago to talk about drag Queens. Ooh, fun. Is there much of a difference between those two? Yes. Oh boy. Yes. And there is, um, especially in, in Boston right now, there is kind of a drag king renaissance happening. Um, there is a drag king workshop program that churned out, uh, 46 graduates, I think, over the course of about a year and a half. Um, so there's 46 new drag kings in the Boston area just in the past year. Um, which is a lot. And prior to that, there was, a handful, <laughs> you know, like a couple, literally a couple. Um, and then in the last couple of months, a couple of drag king, a couple of drag kings, namely, um, MT Hart, <laughs> who spells his name M, like the letter M and then T, the letter T, MT Hart. Um, he and Travis T.I. Stone, um, both, um, were a part of the drag gauntlet, which is, you know, kind of very RuPaul-esque and they both, um, made it to the top three. So, you know, Drag kings have a, an entirely different set of expectations. Um, there's a, a completely different set of body modification for sure. Um, and there's also a different expectation in terms of the numbers. Like I find that drag queen numbers are usually very dance heavy or very camp heavy. <laughs> um, very like campy and dramatic and, you know, um, they're very well acted out. Um, or they're very focused on like the dance and the lip sync and the performance. And like, they really try to make it like tight and fabulous. And, um, drag Kings, I find tend to be either very like silly, like they try to bro it up and they try to be very into the, um, you know, the cliche stereotype of like a silly, like there's a lot of magician types and cowboy types and um things like that that i that i love they're always they always have like neat gimmicks and fun tricks that the audience really love like pulling long handkerchief 
trails like out of their pants basically like that level of kind of like fun comedy that's interactive and cheeky um and then there's also this other side of drag kings that are just like oh my god did you just step out of the gq like what and now you're gonna dance to usher like your usher and you're gonna take off half your clothes what what's happening here um it's very like burlesque adjacent and so there's this burlesque adjacent drag and then there's almost like RuPaul um, drag karaoke campy performance drag. Um, and I find that Kings are in two, one of those two categories typically, but there are not very many drag Queens that focus on burlesque for probably a ton of reasons. I really don't have insight to. <laughs> do you have a drag name? I do. Um, so my drag persona is Flynn ride her, <laughs> um, which, <laughs> Uh, my bio says that I'm uh, an accidental Disney prince, uh, which was largely inspired by my hair. <laughs> nice. And, and where can we see you perform? I, so far, I've performed at Club Cafe in Boston. Um, and I'm also um, in my you know never-ending list of weird talents. I'm also um, I'm doing some photography. <laughs> I'm doing some drag photography, which is its own niche. Um, so uh, right now, I'm actually... Um, not as much performing in drag as I am photographing drag events while in drag, which is its own weird thing. But it's fun. It's a lot of fun. I get to I get to put on my my outfits. I can I can send you a picture of my my guy, and I can send you a link and stuff. But um, it's fun. My the drag performance that I did, uh, my first drag performance was to Double Vision by Three O Three, and I did a storyline that was that I was a. Um, I was coming from a protest or a riot rally and I was like going to a queer pride after party. Um, and so like I rolled up with my protest signs and I like on the back of my protest signs, I had other words that had to do with the song that were like interactive to the song. And then I also had glow sticks that I was like tossing out to the crowd. Like we were at a party uh, or like at a rave or whatever. And, um, and then I also had a huge non-binary flag and like towards the end, I actually pulled it out of the bag, like magic trick stuff and kind of went and like stood with it behind me. It was really kind of a neat um, coming out moment for me as well. And then my, my shirt, my, my shirt costume that I made had um, hashtag ITMFA, which is um, impeach the motherfucker already. And that performance happened like two days after they had announced the impeachment inquiry. And now we're here recording when they've just acquitted him. So, you know, full circle. <laughs> yeah, no, a full circle would have been if they had actually removed him from the office. Yeah, this is more of an incomplete circle. That would, yeah, yeah, that would have been so much better. I honestly, like, I can't even... I can't even look at the news most times right now. It's just, it's like legit too much. Um, and I mean, so, you know, talking about like performance and yeah, I, I definitely, the, the drag king world is, is very, very family oriented. I'm very lucky to be a part of a drag family in a drag house and um, joining the drag workshop was definitely one of the best things I could have done for myself um, this year. And I, I'm, I think that um, it was a huge, like, I took what little time I had in my life that I kind of carve out for myself and come, I combined it with a taking time away from parenting <laughs> and saying, I'm not going to be available on this night. Um, dad night, I'm going to go to drag workshop. It's going to be great. Um, and then also kind of like combining that with 
a passion I have for creating and performing and redefining that because I've never really felt comfortable on stage doing female performances and in female roles and even in karaoke. But I definitely have an entirely different vibe and feel now when I'm like on stage presenting more masculinely and feel more at home in my body. Like it's like one less barrier to enjoying myself. That's awesome. I'm so glad that you have found this identity that you are carving out time for yourself and that's a form of self-care and i would love to talk to you more about that but we need to leave something (laughs) for the panel you know and also it's definitely like both of our bedtimes (laughs) so i think we should continue this conversation in three weeks at pax east that sounds perfect i'm super excited and i'm like i'm i'm so thrilled that you were open and interested in having me on to talk because um, it's, I'm, I, I am very excited about the, the stuff that I've got going on and what I'm getting more excited about is the people around me that are feeling comfortable with like sharing things that are going on with their own identity and like being able to like having big brothers, I call them as friends who are trans masculine or big siblings, um, who I can like lean on and talk to for advice. And now like getting to be a big sibling in some ways is really great, especially for other non-binary people, because there aren't a lot of non-binary older siblings that are kind of like out and comfortable with, with sharing information and and self-identifying and being out yet. So I'm excited to get to do that. So if other people want to learn from your example, where can they find you online? That is an awesome question. I need to figure out my Twitter handle. is not intuitive um my twitter handle is at sorient underscore nim and i'm assuming that'll be written somewhere um i'm also on twitter and facebook um my as my name nick tompkins hughes and other than that um i'm on a few different platforms as the drag king flynn rider <laughs> which is spelled like true you know <laughs> like a true queer uh, r-y-e-d apostrophe h-e-r <laughs> <laughs> um so you know i just had to throw in an extra reference um and right now especially i'm Uh, I'm very excited to be coming to PAX East and um, I'm going to be bringing my research project a couple different places, hopefully in the trans world, um, hopefully to the uh, conference in Philadelphia, uh, the trans health conference. Um, But my research study was on how trans adults in Massachusetts are accessing healthcare. And it was a qualitative study based on experience to be able to kind of like flesh out and define some of the discriminatory experiences that trans individuals have while accessing healthcare instead of just relying on the numbers and the statistics. Um, So it's very depressing, but unfortunately now I'm kind of an expert. Um, (laughs) So if you want to hear more about that or you want a presentation at your workplace about that, please definitely get a hold of me because I can do it. (laughs) Fantastic. There'll be links to all those in the show notes. Nick, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm looking forward to seeing you at PAX. I'm so excited. I haven't given you a hug in forever. Well, it's well overdue. It is very well overdue, and I'm so excited. Thank you so much for having me on. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net. Polygamer.